So, so one of the amazing things about the Serengeti is that it was completely different 100 years ago than it is today because this Rinderpest hugely reduced the abundance of wildebeest. Buffalo almost disappeared. That meant there was less food for the predators, the lions and the hyenas. Once it was eradicated in the early 1960s, we get this huge increase, you know, almost a factor of 10 in the, in, the, in the abundance of the herbivores, and that leads to an increase in the abundance of the carnivores. So again, it's this wildlife management perception that predators are controlling prey is completely turned on its head by that. It says actually diseases are controlling the abundance of these things. And once you remove the diseases, you get an increase in the herbivores, and that leads to an increase in the predators. So they couldn't possibly have been controlling the prey. It was the abundance of food for the predators that was controlling their abundance. <laughs> Physics usually gets the credit for grand unifying theories and the search for universal laws. But looking past arbitrary boundaries between the sciences, it's just as true that ecological research reveals deep patterns in the energy and information structures of our cosmos. There are profound analogies to draw from how evolving living systems organize themselves. And at the intersection of biology and physics, epidemiology and economics, new strategies for conservation and development emerge to guide us through the needle's eye, away from global poverty and ecological catastrophe, and toward a healthier and wealthier tomorrow. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is SFI external professor Andy Dobson of Princeton University, whose work focuses on food webs, parasites, and infectious diseases. To help us understand and better manage the complexities of climate change and urban growth, human-wildlife interactions, and the spread of pathogens. In this episode, we talk about how network structures can inhibit or accelerate disease transmission, the link between biodiversity and economic growth, and how complex systems thinking leads to better wildlife conservation. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for a number of summer programs, as well as staff and research positions. You can find out more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. Just a note that we appreciate your feedback, and we've moved our audio recording to a totally new setup. You might notice that this week's discussion sounds a little grainy, but we hope that you agree things will sound better moving forward. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or by sharing the show on social media. Thanks for listening. Andy Dobson, it's a pleasure to have you join us on Complexity Podcast. What are you doing at SFI this week? This week, we are in a workshop that's part of the Arrow of Time sequence. And so specifically, we're looking at immunity and aging. 
trying to understand how your ability to fight diseases or fight cells in your body changes as you age. And my own particular interest of that is how do species of different body size handle that problem? Mm, yeah, actually, you know, your work on scale as a variable in the primate disease paper, I thought that was an interesting thing. We'll, we'll touch on that. But first, before we start, I'd like to ask how you got into the research that you're doing, how you, got, how you became a scientist and ended up working with diseases and so on. I think I was very lucky in, in, in that I was, uh, I was playing in a rock group in London and I was actually starting a master's in oceanography in Southampton and I was having to hitch uh, lifts up and down in the classic British pouring rain. So I thought it would be better to find a job in London. And I was lucky enough to start working with, with, with a brilliant scientist called uh, Roy Anderson at the beginning of his career. And he, together with uh, Bob May, who has a long association with SFI, were developing theory, for better theory for understanding the population dynamics of infectious diseases. So in order to live in London, I started working as Roy's research assistant. And that I just realized that was going to be so much more interesting than uh, working as a musician. Well, I mean, there's probably, uh, in spite of some of the comments that you make in this paper on the Yellowstone wolf population, there's probably more stable funding as a researcher than as a musician. Uh, that's certainly the case. Any form of funding is never stable, but, but I think uh, long term, there's more sort of funding particularly once you get a sort of faculty job, the funding, the, the, knowing that you've got finances to at least fire, uh, put food on the table helps. Mm. So given that obviously universality and thinking across disciplines is a key theme here at SFI and, and on this podcast in, in particular, I'd kind of like to start with some statements that you made in this paper for PLOS on Yellowstone wolves and the forces that structure natural systems. You, you made a really interesting comment that, uh, you know, comparing the kind of theoretical work that you do to the kind of theoretical work that's being done at CERN and other physics institutions seeking these general principles. And I'd love to hear you uh, discuss that a little bit and, and how you see those things as related to one another. Well, I, I, I mean, I do have immense respect for the work that's done in CERN and, and work that's done by physicists. I feel that the urgent problems we have are trying to understand how natural biological systems work, and how can we take tools, particularly mathematical tools from physics, and apply them to natural ecosystems. And straight away when we start trying to do that, we realize that they fit perfectly into the SFI mandate in that natural systems such as Yellowstone or the Serengeti are naturally complex. They have many components that interact with each other at different nonlinear speeds. So we need to develop the type of mathematics and approach that's used at SFI to understand these systems. I like that you compare the search for the Higgs boson to trophic network research and the idea that really the main thing differentiating these two forms of research are the scale of the phenomena that are being Explore it. Can you get in a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the physicists are very much focused on doing things at, at heroic scales, the scale of the universe or tiny, tiny little scales. So, so I think ecologists tend to perceive as not being doing things that are heroic because we're doing them on physical sizes that are similar to ourselves. Yet the irony of that is that 
understanding how those systems work and having a, a, a deeper theoretical understanding so as we can manage them better is crucial. We, 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 as people like Greta Thunberg will tell us, we have about 10 years to solve those problems. Whereas you know, the wait for Higgs boson can go on for a century, can't go on if we haven't solved those problems of how we manage the natural world properly. Mm. You know, I don't know if you would find this, you know, a fair line to draw, but I'm sure you're familiar with some of the work that Jessica Flack has been yes, doing lately yeah, uh, and, yeah. and her provocative comments that rather than complexity being a sort of informational hierarchy of emergence, that it may have more to do with us being at the center of this hourglass, that, right. that we're at an information bottleneck, and that when our tools improve, we find as much complexity in the microscopic or the macroscopic as we do at the meso level. Yeah. No, I think those are, that's a very important insight. And, and we see that, I mean, particularly with the workshop this week. Once we realized that there was this whole community of organisms living in humans and all other animal and plant species, the microbiome, we realize there's as much biodiversity inside us as there is outside that we're trying to save. On that note, it seems like a good place to start exploring your research and discussing it is in this paper that you co-authored for a research report in Science Magazine on a general consumer resource population model. And, you know, this is a really clear example of the idea that, you know, really what we're looking for, as David Krakauer said in the first episode of the show, is compact, elegant encodings to describe uh, what we observe in nature, but as simple as possible, but no simpler than adequate. Right. You know, and, and so you, what you and your, your co-authors have done here is put together a really interesting general model for how uh, organisms sort of independent of their, you know, we tend to think of, you know, in terms of like heterotrophic predator-prey relationships, the Locke de Volterra model. And that's, you know, you make a really smart argument here that that's a profound oversimplification, that it's not general enough. So could you explore no, this? I mean, the goal for doing that we're, we're very much goes back to work on food webs, similar things to Jennifer Dunn has been doing here. That is the central core of work we need to understand how places like Yellowstone work, how places like the Serengeti work. We need models for food webs. They will always have two components. The, 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 the geometry of the web and how different species are coupled together to give some geometric pattern. And, and that geometry will tell you something about stability. But you also need a generalized mathematical function that tells you about the, the, the scaffolding poles, if you like, that couple the different species together. And so what we were trying to say is, you know, sometimes those relationships are predator-prey relationships, sometimes they're virus and host relationships, sometimes they're elk eating grass. Could we have a general form for those equations? Because people have tended to use, starting with the Locker-Volterra equations, different variants on those. Now, is there an underlying set of equations which could collapse down to give you any of the other types of equations, but you could use them for any type of interaction. And hopefully the thing that would determine the way they collapse down would be the relative body size of the predator or prey, or more generally the consumer and the resource that they're consuming. So it's an attempt to find a general set of functions that could be used to couple together the geometry of food webs. One of the things I really enjoyed about this was how it brings to light how uh, these types of relationships may change over the lifespan of an right. organism, you know, that you get partitioning between, 
different life stages of a single creature, or, or you get even in, you know, at a single phase in an organism's life, it may have different types of consumer resource relationships, right. like the leech, right? Is this example where it's a predator sometimes and it's a micro predator other times? So, so how do you, you know, how are you seeing or how are you imagining this shedding new light on the way that we understand these trophic networks and how we can start to use this additional dimensionality to uh, explain some of the complexity that we see in ecology? I mean, we hope that that that, that approach will, will help in several ways. Well, one, it, it sort of, I mean, it even relates particularly to the uh, the working group we're looking at this week, the the, the age and immunity, because I mean, one of the classic things with consumer resource predator prey relationships is that a predator only eats you once. You, know, and you spend a lot <laughs> of your life being scared and worried about the lion that about me out there or the crocodile, but that's a one-off interaction. You may only lose a limb, uh, but in contrast to that, you are steadily accumulating a bunch of parasites and pathogens. You may only have a transient relationship with an influenza virus for over a week, but it changes your immune system in a way that modifies how it will react to another attack by a tiny little predator type thing like the next flu virus to come along. If you get a worm, which is a, not too tragic a thing to happen, but you've got that as a companion for the next five to 10 years. And that also modifies the way that A, your immune system operates, be the amount of food in your gut that's available to you, you're sharing it effectively with the worm through that period of time. And people living in Africa and South America have you know, a whole community of pets living in their guts that they're sharing their food with. So it's looking at how do we understand from a food web perspective, how much energy is going into the parasitic species, of which there may be a huge diversity, versus along the traditional plants eating, uh, herbivores eating plants, carnivores eating herbivores, lines of the food web. So it gives you a, a mechanism of looking at the dynamics of those things and understanding how they affect energy flow. This seems like it also might illuminate how different lineages have shifted in their strategy over time. Like, you right. know, where, like where a, a, a predator or a, you know, a micro predator may become a parasite over right. some period. I, yeah, well, there, there does seem to be one of the, the things we were able to do in that paper was to say, because we can show these uh, general equations collapse down in different ways, there's effectively a phylogeny in the way that different consumer resource relationships are related. And that very much splits with this bifurcation of being eaten from the outside in versus from the inside out. But we also find that, that the, the evolution of parasitism, it seems to be very much tied in with, with, with the species that were originally living on decomposing bodies. Mm. Most of the species have evolved to be some form of pathogen are things that have ancestors that were feeding on decomposers and decided just to move into the thing that became their host while it was still alive and then feed on it when it's still alive. And we're talking in evolutionary time here rather than in the course of the, the lifespan of, a, of an organism. Uh, and in the end, having a sort of interaction, a co-evolutionary interaction with it, let's keep it alive a bit longer because it'll keep feeding us if it's alive, whereas if it's dead, we'll have to go and find another one to feed on. Mm. Kind of similarly, I, you brought up Jennifer Dunn and the way that she and her colleagues have started including use webs into their trophic networks. You know, not not just uh, we're feeding on this thing, but we might be harvesting living animals for resources. You know, right. shearing sheep and, yeah. and and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's not a long jump 
from this kind of general model to economic evaluations right. and you know looking at different kinds of economic relationships uh you know corporate mergers right. the way that you know different human agencies depend on one another the way different human communities depend on one another have you and your colleagues worked much on that no it's something we're starting to, to work i i've started working with um economists in France, where we're beginning to look at can we make uh, models for um, decisions that people living in poverty make and that are affected by the economic services they get from the biodiversity around them, whereas at the same time, some of the decisions they make will reduce that biodiversity. So, so can we begin to sort of develop economic theory for people living on the economic margins, but very much embedded in natural ecological systems? So people like in the Amazon or in the Serengeti, and also including sort of early farming like around the Mediterranean. Now, one of the most curious conversations I had there, and I noticed you had to figure out that um, one of the figures that consistently emerges from that work that appeared on the generalized consumer resource models is you always have some saturating function relating the abundance of resource to the amount that gets consumed. And I was talking to the economists about this and they said, well, what's that function? We, we rarely ever use something like that. This concept of things saturating uh, was very alien to them. And I was like, what? I mean, that, that is central to all ecological models of the way that species interact together. Yet it doesn't seem to be a common way that the economists think about it. So even sort of bringing that approach in would, would, would help. And then one of the things we're trying to do is bring together models that have aspects of ecological models with aspects of economic models and, and aspects of uh, models for diseases which is we say, well, I just think of it as a special case as a predator-prey relationship, but the, the diseased people tend to think of them as a more pure thing. Do we get further insights from the bringing together three different disciplines to say, that's a huge amount of emerging complexity, but how does it change the way each of those disciplines thinks about their problems? Yeah, so that paper that you're, you're just mentioning here, this uh, General Ecological Models for Human Subsistence, Health and Poverty in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Yeah, yeah this one was... I, I, kind of discouraging right? in, in some respects, you know, this, you know, uh, studying poverty traps right. and really what the realistic limits of our, uh, you know, global sustainable development strategies are. And yeah, so I'd love to, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you are applying this kind of thinking to the, where we can set our expectations for the eradication of poverty and, and also, you know, the, the risk or the threat of poverty in even more well-to-do nations? Because it, it right. really looks like we're all sort of perched on the edge of a precipice all the time. Well, it does. I mean, th those models very much say that there's a likelihood of going in two different directions. Uh, and how do we avoid going in the worst possible direction of having lots of people living in poverty? I mean, one of our agendas there was we, we're now entering the period of, uh, of the Sustainable Development Goals, which uh, have set guidelines for what we'd like the world to look like by 2030. Uh, there's about 17 of those, and we've been working, could we start developing a framework initially in those papers, and, and now, as I say, uh, with an overlapping group of, uh, of colleagues and with more economists this time, to say, how can we realistically find ways of um, taking models for biodiversity and its loss, how that affects people's food and the, the other things that affect their survival and, and health and integrate those into a common framework. And how many of the sustainable development goals are 
compatible with each other. And, and once you start putting them in these frameworks, how many of them are incompatible and, and how are we going to deal with this? Because obviously the UN goal and the people have signed up to the sustainable goals, development, development goals is to have all of those goals met. And it may be that they're incompatibilities or interactions that take you down the wrong trajectory. So, yeah, the, you know, one of the things that comes out of the models in this paper is that uh, globally stable poverty you write, uh, represents the largest portion of the parameter space for all models explored. Um, and, and especially for the more complex models, it, it seems like it was the, a deeply worrying result. But in fact, we had two groups of people working on different aspects uh, of those problems in parallel, and it consistently came up. Avoiding that poverty trap is a non-trivial problem. And that that has to do with uh, the sort of reinforcing positive feedback. Definitely, yeah. that, and, and finding ways to, to to focus both on people's health and on their nutrition and, and the food that's available to them, and the fact that that lots of that is coming from other species, and we need to keep those other species going for those, uh, both to reduce disease risk and to enhance food availability. So this is sort of linked to uh, Ross Hammond's work on the global syndemic, right? That this notion that climate change and, and malnutrition and obesity are are uh, reinforcing one another. And so, you know, the, this seems like it makes pretty clear policy prescriptions about where the best place to put investments are if you really want to lift people out of poverty. Well, to a scientist, it makes clear recommendations. <laughs> To a politician, it's intensely inflammatory because it may not fit in with it. Their perceptions of what needs to be done or their perceptions of what their philosophy says needs to be done. And again, one of the largest problems we have with all of the work we do that deals with the environment and health is how do you present the science in a way that it isn't inflammatory from a political perspective? That seems like it requires its own kind of complex systems thinking in terms yes. of getting people to think across multiple different time scales rather right. than just within an election cycle. Yes. <laughs> well, according to Greta Thunberg, we've probably got two election cycles to go before it'll all be irrelevant. So, I mean, in that sense, yeah, like the closer, th th that is oddly optimistic because, right, like is that what that means is that the political goal time horizon and the ecological goal or economic goal time horizon I'm are actually get, yeah. getting closer. Yeah, what well, we see with things like the fires in Australia at the current time and how that's massively undermining the Australian prime minister's position, um, that tragically, I think we're going to have to have more environmental disasters like that to turn the political minds to say, actually, we really need to start listening to what the scientists are saying. But similarly, there is so much science being done that the needs there's a need for more cogently sharp messages for the people who are protesting on the streets to say, the scientists specifically say this, we want that to happen. The scientists are saying that we need that to happen rather than just listen to the scientists. The scientists have to put a, a sharper message out there for the people on the streets to send back to the politicians. So that seems like it links nicely into this other piece. You're the lead author for this piece at PLOS Medicine on sacred cows and sympathetic squirrels. Right. And you're making you know, a really interesting case uh, looking at how uh, the epidemiology links to the way that different cultures regard different animals. Right. Could you talk well, that, a little bit about that? I, that came from a, a meeting we had at Penn State there because there's this... Uh, 
controversy within the, the sort of world of wildlife disease, infectious disease people about how important is biodiversity either as a source of new pathogens or as a buffer for old pathogens. And, and so we were discussing the various mechanisms by which perhaps um, for things like Lyme disease in uh, the eastern US, having possums around, possums are, are fabulous magnets for ticks. So the possums get covered in ticks, but don't get Lyme disease. But every tick that attaches to a possum, or usually which it then goes on to eat, stops a human being infected if that tick happens to be infected. So there's a benefit to biodiversity there. For, for other diseases, the more hosts, you know, the more other species are out there, then there's a higher risk that they'll have a pathogen that might come across. So could we delineate uh, the, the mathematical uh, structure of, and of host communities that says under which circumstances will having more uh, diversity of host species increase the risk of humans getting disease or their livestock getting disease and under which circumstances will more host diversity reduce the risk to human disease and the bottom line is for things that are transmitted usually by vectors which we tend to think of frequency dependent transmission having higher biodiversity is usually a good thing because it gives plenty of suboptimal hosts for the vectors to go and feed on and that reduces the risk to humans Alternatively, for directly transmitted things, things like e e Ebola or SARS or this new SARS-like thing that's happened, as long as there's lots of species out there, there's probably lots of diseases we haven't discovered yet that may pop over from them. And, and so we should be slightly more worried about directly transmitted diseases in terms of new things emerging than we should from vector-transmitted diseases. So, yeah, so just as an example, you make this supposition and that you you acknowledge as a controversial yeah. supposition that that's uh, where the the tradition of the sacred cow comes right. from right? yeah no well that that it comes from work um done in india um with uh, mercedes pasquale who, who's on the board of trustees here but we noticed going around some of these towns uh in, in the 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 sort of uh, very impoverished parts of India, that there would be a huge difference between one house would have a cow in the backyard, another couple of houses wouldn't have a cow. Now, the kids in the house with the cow were much, much healthier. Now, that could be an effect that, you know, if you, if you uh, had a better job and had more money to feed your kids, then your kids would be healthier and you could buy a cow as well. But it looked as if everybody was uh, financially challenged, but the difference was if you had a cow, the cow is wonderfully attractive to mosquitoes. And so instead of the mosquitoes biting your kids and giving them malaria, they go and bite the cow and the cow doesn't get malaria. Plus you have the advantage that the cow's giving you milk, which you can make into cheese. So the kids are better fed and less risk of getting malaria. And indeed, when we talked to people, they said, oh yeah, all those people with cows, their kids don't get as sick as ours do. Hmm. It seems like a similar effect to, but through a different mechanism to the work on, you know, like the ch children that play in the dirt, children right. that have dogs and, and cats in the home, that there are, you know, there's, there's a number of different ways in which uh, a more biodiverse home environment can be beneficial. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we certainly see that in, um, around the Serengeti in East Africa, where I work, uh, there's a huge population of dogs, which we've been working on with my colleagues there to vaccinate and prevent those dogs having rabies because the last thing you want is your kid to get rabies but um the dogs do a fantastic job of keeping the kids cleaned up keeping the area around the house cleaned up and that massively reduces the risk to the children from other diseases 
And people are thrilled to have a dog because one of the ways of sort of keeping your relationships good with your neighbor is getting a litter of puppies and, and, and passing the puppies out to share. So although you could have quite an effect on reducing the risk to rabies by um, sterilizing the dogs. That's the last thing that the local people want because if you sterilize the dog, it's useless to them. It's not going to have puppies anymore. Mm -hmm. So they want both the, the benefit, which may be subconscious to them, uh, of the dogs uh, cleaning up the area around the house and preventing quite a lot of diseases for the, for the kids, plus a constant production of, uh, of puppies to use to sort of keep yourself in with your neighbors and other friends in the village. Yeah, one of the things uh, that comes up again and again in in these papers of yours, though, is that it's not clean cut, simple, linear relationships. Like you mentioned that you know that uh, cattle create new environments for right. mosquitoes to breed. Yeah. So if you go from uh, we were looking in uh, both um, Gujarat and uh, Delhi. But if you go across uh, from Gujarat in, into the, uh, the the desert regions of Pakistan, there having cattle may increase the risk of malaria because the sort of pools of poop and everything are great breeding grounds for mosquitoes. So, so all these uh, relationships are non-linear. I mean, right back to the, 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 the generalized predator-prey model, at the heart of that is, is that non-linear relationship with, which um, the uh, wonderful book on the Serengeti rules it goes right back to sort of Michaelis and Menton saturating functions of what cause non-linearities in food webs and many other processes. I'm glad that you're bringing up the Serengeti stuff right. uh, because I meant to ask you, it, it, you're not really discussing it explicitly in any of the, the papers that I've read of yours, but you, you do mention uh, on your website that you do this work with the Serengeti Biocomplexity Project. And yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, as I say, uh, initially, my interest there was to go and work on different diseases, particularly diseases that were shared between wildlife and domestic livestock. Uh, initially focusing on uh, rinderpest, which is one of the two diseases that have ever been eradicated by vaccination. And then all the early work on that was done around the Serengeti and then up in Nairobi by a wonderful guy called uh, Walter Plowride. That then led to work looking at vaccination of domestic dogs because of the, they have rabies, which, which can be transmitted to, to children. And we, we, we were getting you know, 50 to 60 children a year dying from rabies, which is a horrible way to die. So if you could vaccinate the dogs against rabies, at the same time you could vaccinate them against another disease, uh, canine distemper. Uh, which was spilling over from the dogs into wildlife and causing outbreaks in, in, in lions, leopards, hyenas, uh, and another disease called canine parvovirus, which was causing declines in the, in the wild dogs. So that looking at those disease control projects also got me thinking, it's like when we get these disease outbreaks in wildlife, it completely changes the structure of the natural food web. And once the disease is eradicated, we get an opportunity to see how the whole ecosystem responds to the removal of one particular pathogen. So, so one of the amazing things about the Serengeti is that it was completely different 100 years ago than it is today because this rinderpest hugely reduced the abundance of wildebeest. Buffalo almost disappeared. That meant there was less food for the predators, the lions and the hyenas. Once it was eradicated in the early 1960s, we get this huge increase, you know, almost a factor of 10 in the, in, the, in the abundance of the herbivores, and that leads to an increase in the abundance of the carnivores. 
So again, it's this wildlife management perception that predators are controlling prey is completely turned on its head by that. It says actually diseases are controlling the abundance of these things. And once you remove the diseases, you get an increase in the herbivores and that leads to an increase in the predators. So they couldn't possibly have been controlling the prey. It was the abundance of food for the predators that was controlling their abundance. And then that gets you thinking about, well, how are all those things coupled together in the food web? And to understand it, do we need to have every single piece of the food web or can we just look at the main branches, the, the, the sort of grass that the wildebeest eat, the wildebeest, the zebra and the buffalo, the commonest species, and then the commonest species of carnivores? And how much of an understanding do we get just by looking at that core 10 species rather than the, the 10,000 other species that are there? This seems kind of akin to some of the counterintuitive results that you discuss in uh, this PLOS one piece you co-authored on uh, social structure, demography, and transmissions, the interactions between these things determining disease persistence in right. primates. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how you put these models together and, and how they yielded surprising results? Yes, that was a, a project I was doing with, with an undergraduate at Princeton, Sadie Ryan, who's, who's now a tenured faculty member at the, the um, University of uh, Florida at Gainesville. We were interested uh, in what is the relationship between social systems and disease. I played around with some theoretical models for that and then decided it would be interesting if we could focus in on one group of species. And I should step back and say that interest in social systems and disease really started emerging when HIV appeared because up until then, we, people hardly talked about sexually transmitted diseases, and there was very little information on social systems. You know, we, we knew a little about the social system of like the British royal family, but we had no other data on uh, very good, not particularly good data on human social interactions, because people were quite quiet about it. So we thought it'd be interesting to look across primates because of fantastic studies, field studies of primates where individuals have been followed through time and there's a variety of different social systems. There's also very good databases on the different types of parasites that, and pathogens that go through different primates. So we wanted to know as social systems become more complex, does that allow more pathogens to establish in them? And what type of pathogens appear in different social systems. And of course, one of the instant ironies that emerges is that the, the, the ultimate social system that, that, that many people would like us to live in is this sort of monogamous territorial system uh, that will be characterized by some sort of top carnivore in a system. Uh, if you have a system like that, the only diseases you're going to get are sexually transmitted diseases. Because the only time you have any interaction with another member of your species is when a male and female meet to mate. And that's the only opportunity for disease transmission. The rest of the time, there's no contact, so there can't be any disease transmission. Now, you will pick up things if you're a carnivore from your food, uh, but you then transmit that in some ways back to your food. It's only when you have these more complex social systems, like through the, the, the chimpanzees and the gorillas and, and the, the baboons, where you have promiscuous systems, but you've actually got the abundance of interactions that allows non-sexually transmitted diseases to establish. So we wanted to look across primate social systems and see how much of those patterns emerge. And it was quite a strong signature that, that as you go from the, the smaller primate species, which tend to be monogamous and territorial, they mainly only have SCDs. Once you go up to the larger primate species that are living large groups, there's a much larger diversity of diseases. 
So this seems like uh, you would find very, very distinct patterns in disease ecosystems between like the chimps and the bonobos. Well, the chimps and the bonobos do seem to have fairly similar pathogens because they have a very the other thing with diseases, you have the diseases you come down through evolution with quite a lot of the time. So there, I mean, the chimps and the bonobos probably only split like four to five million years ago, maybe even later, more recently than that. So they they have subtly different social systems, but they're still living in groups with lots of interactions between them. And body size is roughly the same thing, and they're living in similar habitats. But the the difference then between, say, the, the chimps and the baboons that are out in the savannas is much more dramatic, but their split between them is much deeper. So one of the things that you mentioned in this is that this has a lot to do with whether the organisms in question develop an immunity or right. not, right? So like uh, exposure may actually be beneficial if you're developing an immunity. Right. And yeah, so, I, you know, I wonder, I mean, surely <laughs> there have been thoughts to, you know, what this means in terms of how economic changes affect the kind of decisions that like, you know, a lot of people in my generation now are, are uh, doing co-housing rather right. like the way that the suburbs are populated is changing with like mul multiple families living in a single right. home and so on. So, you know, what do you see as, um, uh, emergent concerns giving this, this, the shifts in lifestyle and, and, uh, demographic and that kind of thing among human beings. Well, I mean, that, that raises a fascinating bunch of questions. I mean, if we look over just human history and when different types of diseases have emerged, most new diseases don't appear at random. They usually come, they usually arise because the opportunities for transmission change as human social organization changes. So if you think of all the, the biblical plagues, those all arose when people started living in cities and they, you know, there were bigger aggregations of people living together, providing enough people for chains of transmission not to be broken. So as things like measles, whooping cough uh, could establish in those situations. Changes in agricultural practices allow other diseases to, to come in. And like, like the sacred gas, begin to start creating taboos in societies that live in certain ways to prevent uh, exposure to certain types of diseases. Uh, we don't know what people living in the suburbs is going to do to different types of diseases. It may be a, a, a mix. Plainly, we have much stronger tools for dealing with, with, with disease now, but we've good tools for dealing with many of the diseases and pathogens we're familiar with. If something new appears, um, we, we have to ramp up quite quickly to know how to deal with it, but we're also getting better at that. I mean, the new SARS-like thing that's appeared in uh, China, uh, and then there was a case in Japan yesterday, and, and I think a case in Thailand, it's killed two people, but there are, there's a group of people who really understand those diseases on it to try and work out what do we do next? Is this a big threat or is it something we can deal with in a similar way that we dealt with SARS? Relatedly, there's this, you know, uh, when Lauren Ansel Myers gave right. her community lecture here a while back, you know, one of the things that, you know, it makes sense would be preoccupying epidemiologists now is the just explosion of intercontinental air travel. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that comes out of this, the models that you're, you're making for this, this paper are that, um, that there, there's a suggestion that there's a threshold of within group infection before the disease can disperse to another group. Yeah. And so, you know, this reminds me of um, a few years ago, uh, Spotify bought 
the musical big data company Echonest, right. and one of the things that they were looking at is where the viral pop hits come from. Right. And it seemed like the incubators for innovative new music were island nations like the UK, like like Iceland, Australia, you know, places where um, and this makes sense with, yeah. you know, island Enough biodiversity. People talk with each other to to, to to, to take off yeah. right these tightly connected local networks right. and this is this is related to work that the military has done on on engineering viral media right you know so the question you know to me is you know it, it seems like you, while we have reason to be concerned about the increased rate of international travel um that it may be that the flattening of this the world in this way is actually sort of inhibiting the like local saturation and like incubation required for certain forms of disease transmission. Well, again, I, I mean, again, the, the, those initial models on the primates were, were instructive. We were using a, a static framework there. We, we assumed the social systems were relatively static and then compared what type of pathogens could be sustained by hosts with different social systems. Uh, more recently, with work in Yellowstone, we managed to develop a more dynamic framework that allows the, the, the abundance and the group size of the hosts to be dynamic. And then what happens when you put pathogens into those? And there again, you, you get this thing which, which is called sort of uh, social trapping, whereas depending on the relative rates of within group transmission and between group transmission, you can have pathogens that get into a social group, affect everybody in that group, but there's not enough between group contact for them to get out of it. So they die out quite quickly in the handful of groups that get infected. Other types of things are, are like the air travel. Everybody's coupled together and these things can spread quite quickly. Uh, and in terms of emerging diseases, those would be the things I'd be worried about. So to, to zoom out a little bit from this point, you, you observe in this work that there is a, a sort of a broader problem with the way that we're thinking about conservation biology in terms of the fragmentation of populations and habitats, and that we tend to look just at the gross numbers of right. a, a remaining species rather than the way that the, you know, these smaller populations and a fragmented environment um, lead to, you know, this kind of sort of nonlinear relationship. Well, again, it's a double-edged sword. If, if you have populations that are divided into social groups or into habitat fragments, if those habitat fragments are well-connected, then a disease that gets in can move from habitat to habitat and social group to social group. If it's something that species hasn't seen before, then that can cause you big problems. Or, although we are desperately worried about fragmenting up nature, if those fragments are not coupled together too strongly, then you can get a disease outbreak in one fragment and it won't spread to the others. So you might lose all the individuals in that fragment, but you may then well be able to repopulate it from some of the ones where the disease outbreak didn't occur. So again, it's a double-edged sword and it's both interesting from a, I think an evolutionary perspective of how the pathogens establish in host species with different social systems. And then the, the, the practical thing is, is how, is it best to uh, focus on the infected group or is it best just to reduce the rate at which the thing moves between groups? Mm. So this seems like it may have some actionable insights with respect to, uh, you know, there's a growing conversation over the last few years in terms of decentralizing our social architecture. Yeah. In one sense, it seems kind of discouraging that 
this idea of a global internet, for example, is starting to uh, balkanize. Right. But in other respects, that seems like it may actually be useful to us in terms of uh, allowing different island networks to devise different strategies right. for social organization. Well, again, it would be interesting. I, I know they had this wonderful uh, experiment that they uh, did with the SFI postdocs when they locked them in a house for 24 hours and they, they had to come up with a publishable paper. Yeah, yeah. But they came up with, uh, how would a beneficial pathogen spread, I think was one of the, the, the first time they did that. But it'd be interesting to take the model they did for that and then put it into one of these social system models and say, uh, actually, uh, how do beneficial ideas spread from group to group? Because uh, one of the, the sort of odd effects we get with this wolf disease model is that biggest risk for a wolf is another wolf. The, the wolf groups kill each other all the time. So 75% of the wolves in Yellowstone get killed by other wolves. But if you have a disease that reduces the abundance of wolves or reduces the number of wolf groups, then uh, the size of wolf groups goes up because there's less negative interactions between, there's less groups to have negative interactions with each other. Now, will that turn itself inside out if you had beneficial interactions with a group, would the groups get bigger and ultimately the group that was benefiting most kill all the other groups? <laughs> so so, so it, it, what's the upside and the downside of these beneficial and, and, and detrimental things that may be detrimental or beneficial to a group? What's the effect once the groups are coupled together? And again, that, that would give you, I hope, sort of insights into sort of social networks and how information spreads through those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's so many places to look in modern news yeah. that remind me of, uh, you know, the, the 30 years war and just right. like the, the insane religious mess that Europe was after the Protestant Reformation. Absolutely, and, right. So you get that, that kind of that question about regarding a, you know, a particularly successful religious uh, paradigm right. as as a beneficial mutation and and like how that that ends up shifting the political landscape across the Western world over the last few hundred years. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't well, know where well, I'm going well, with that. I don't, McNeil in uh, Plagues and People makes this case that 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 uh, the sort of original spread of Christianity through the Roman Empire was massively helped by uh, measles. That there was a sort of measles spreading through the Roman Empire at the same time. If you saw someone with measles and gave them a drink of water out of sort of sympathy as the way a good Christian would, the, the survival rate of those people came up uh, and they thank God for, for all that help. Uh, but if they hadn't have had the measles to be killing them in the first place, it, Christianity may well have spread at a much, much slower rate. Mm. So McNeil talks about that way back in the 60s in Plagues and People. To loop back to, we were talking about uh, biodiverse uh, human communities, right. you know, with the, with cows and dogs and so on. I'm reminded of a, a comment my friend David Titterington made once about the the holy water, right? You know, and like the holy water is the dirtiest thing in the whole church, and everybody's putting their hands in it, <laughs> right? And if it helps you rehydrate when you're really dehydrated. <laughs> uh, it, there's a cost benefit that it might well lean towards the benefits. Mm. So, um, you, you know, you mentioned being here for the working group on on aging and, and right. adaptation, all that. Um, now, uh, what else are you working on? Um, well, I, as I said, I, I've been doing lots of work on these uh, social groups and, and how that affects disease transmission. Um, with a wonderful postdoc I had, um, we've been doing uh, work on scaling, very much inspired by, by, by the work that sort of Jeff West, Brian Enquist, and Jim Brown did here. And then seeing, can we use that in uh, models to look at 
how does the immune system scale? So, so as you have hosts of different size, and the immune system we have in humans evolved from the immune system that was certainly there in the, the, the earliest mammals and, and, and simply before that lizards and then right back to um, sea anemones and, and, and sponges. So how did the different, the different components of that, the T cells and the B cells, have much smaller variation in size than the host they're living in? You know, the T cells and the B cells in an elephant aren't three orders of magnitude bigger than the ones in me or, or, or in a mouse. They're roughly the same size. One of their most important functions is keeping a memory of what, is, what diseases and what pathogens have you seen before. But if the life expectancy of those cells is a function of their size and their size doesn't change too much, how do they do this business of keeping memory in a finite population of cells that have a finite life expectancy? And so can we look at ways of both trying to understand how the immune system kept up with the body size evolution of the mammals and the, the, the birds? And can we make simplified models of the immune system that we could use to compare how it functions in a mouse compared with how it functions in a cow or a human or a sheep right up to an elephant with a interesting sideline that birds uh, have much lower mass than the mammals because they have to fly so their immune systems are, are very similar but subtly different and then bats have to fly. So, so how do their immune systems work compared to uh, mammals that don't fly? Because if you have hollow bones, where, where, do you make the, where do you get the bone marrow to make the B cells that are part of your immune system? And, and so do these species have immune systems that operate in subtly different ways? Uh, and how many insights can we get to that from looking at this two levels of scaling? How, how does the component parts of the immune system scale with their, their physical size and, and how does that operate in different ways in, in, in this sort of pool of the host of different sizes so this seems really uh intimately related to questions about human cultural memory and like how as human society has has right. scaled and the amount of information that civilization is is you know trying to track right at any given time um you know we've had to come up with new like you know outboard forms right. like r the written language or even prior you know david krakauer's yeah. work at the um in the late 90s with martin noick at princeton right. yep. on the evolution of syntax emerging right. as a response to the risk of an error catastrophe right so like what what are you what or what do you imagine we we're gonna see uh, in terms of how an elephant immune system is operating with similarly sized components across this much larger uh, this much larger context. Well, uh, I mean, part of the things that we've begun to get glimmers of this week is that as the host body size gets larger, big parts of the immune system slow down. So they're essentially working at a rate similar to basal met metabolic rates. So it's a larger mammals have slower metabolic rates than smaller ones. So having the rate at which your immune cells replicate slowing down maybe giving you enough time to, to have your, your, your memory cells last as long as you do. Mm. Uh, but that we're, we're still, that, that's a result where we haven't fully tied up yet. That, that, that will begin to get to that. We, we also have 
something we've realized uh, only comparatively recently in humans, that some of the diseases, particularly things like rinderpest that we mentioned earlier in the Serengeti or the distemper in dogs or, or measles in humans, one of the things it does is it causes a disease in you, which itself is really nasty. But the other thing it does is it completely wipes out your uh, immune memory. So it's like having to restart again at whatever age you happen to get measles. Uh, and so often prior to vaccination, people who got measles would get sick over the next two years from all the things they'd had before they had measles because they had to regenerate their immune system. So, so we're finding these things that measles and rinderpest and uh, distemper do similar things in other host species of eradicating their immune memory, which means you've got to get sick to everything again to build that memory up again. And that's a bit like going in and tearing up the library to get rid of all those books and then having to collect them again because that's what that virus has done to you. Which again, I can't think of a stronger reason to vaccinate your kids against measles because they're going to get really sick from a whole bunch of other things again. And similarly, the older you get those things, Pathologically, it's worse to have measles as you get older, but similarly, it's eradicating much more memory because you've been around more longer to accumulate that memory. Mm. So uh, the, the first part of that, you know, talking about the uh, lowering the, the base metabolic rate right. of the immune system, uh, I was interviewing uh, Melanie Moses. In oh, the yes, same, fabulous person. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah in, this, right. in the oh. same seats. And uh, she was talking about this with respect to anthills and how right. like as the anthill gets larger and larger, the you know fewer and fewer of the ants are active at any given time right. and we you know we saying like so what is this this looks like um when i was talking again with uh, brian arthur right and he was talking about this in terms of you know production gets you know we as our economy scales then we put less emphasis on production production gets easier right. with scale and more emphasis on the 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 uh, distribution of resources right. and how this starts to look like a, you know, this, this starts to suggest sort of a universal basic income, right. you know, the question of um, maybe, you know, at, at 10 billion people, most people are just watching TV at right. any given time. Um, but then, you know, then the, the question uh, that, you know, in the second part of what you're talking about here, which is that, um, you know, to try and draw an analogy to uh, human civilization from the immune system, that um, there are ways that we might view the accelerating pace of our technological surround as a, you know, a measles equivalent type thing to the extent that, you know, the more that we're focused on the, you know, the Twitter time horizon, right. the the quarterly financial reports, right. the more at, imperiled we are, by uh, threats that we at earlier moments in history have already faced. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I don't know. I guess it's just sort of a broad. Uh, but, well, I think there's multiple analogies there. Like, um, I, I, I think one of the things that causes these social networking uh, programs to collapse, if you think of the earlier ones, is the, the thing that finances them is the advertising. So when you first join it, uh, you've got a handful of friends and you have good interactions with those. As it gets bigger and bigger, it becomes a bit like the dilution effect in these disease things. You're getting more and more advertising. That means it's very hard to find the messages from your friends. And it's got this thing, well, maybe they'll only send you a message if you talk with that friend in the last couple of weeks. But you're so busy filtering your way through the advertising and all the other fire hose of nonsense that's in there that eventually 
that particular social network's useless because the dilution effect of everybody else's information means you can't find what you're looking for in it. And so a new one will arise. I think, you know, every four or five years, the, the, the kids in the schools get a new one and then their parents slowly adopt it to see what their kids are doing. And then the advertisers pick up on that. And it's suddenly nobody wants to use it anymore because this dilution effect of too much information that's useless to you, that you're spending too much of your time filtering your way through, uh, kills that whole network. And, and so I do see analogies to that and this dilution effect in disease. The, the, the real mm. signal you're looking for gets lost in this massive noise. And yet, like, this is, this is uh, probably something we're not going to design our way out of. No, right? it's what pays for it. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, there's the whole issue of uh, increasing returns and preferential attachment, right? right? So, like, uh, I remember, um, I think it was Review the Future podcast that had Kevin Kelly on. Right. And they were asking him about, you know, it, it, the, the, the internet seems to reward monopoly, Right. You know, it seems to create these yes. enormous monopolies yeah. faster and faster. And they were like, well, are you worried about this? And he was like, well, no, not really, because it overturns the monopolies faster than it used right. to. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 it is amazing how quickly it's developed, but also how rapidly some of the things that were dominating early on have disappeared. Uh, 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 some before they even had time to become monopolies. But it's also massively overturned many of the older monopolies as well. I mean, the high streets are a completely different place now than they were even five, ten years ago. So, I mean, given given that almost everything that we've touched on in this conversation, right. you know, is a double-edged sword. <laughs> right. <laughs> where do you, yes. and, you know, what what provides op, your optimism? You know, what, what where do you, you know, where do you feel good about the direction that this this planet is heading right now? Well, there's two parts to answer that. I, I, I mean, to me as a scientist, it's places like Santa Fe Institute, the, the coming here, spending time talking with intelligence people, working on hard problems will always be stimulating. And the rest of the world disappears, I think, when I'm here, which, which is part of a problem, but, but <laughs> fabulous for me. And the, the thing that's giving me huge optimism is, is actually uh, Greta Thunberg and all these Children, young people out on the street saying, we have to do something about this. Stop messing around with, with the, 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 the political discussion that's going on at the moment is so f distant from reality and the problems we have to face in the next decade that actually, you know, the first time in 25 years, I feel optimistic because it's people saying, listen to the scientists. And that's why I think the scientists need to sharpen their message for people to, to say, this is what we need to have done. And having people, not in the political arena, but outside the political arena, demanding that the politicians see that these are the problems we have to deal with rather than the, the, the messes they're getting themselves into. So the, basically, the, the, in a weird way, the, like we mentioned earlier, yeah. in a weird way, the urgency is yeah. sort of its own the urgency is now being felt and hopefully we have enough time to solve the scientific or find solutions to those scientific and health problems in the very little time we have available. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, Andy Dobson, Super good to talk thank to you. you so much. Yeah, this has been a real, quite a, lot a real barnstormer. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks a lot. We'll confirm that they all think I'm mad. And I'm <laughs> desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.